This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's O Ship. Uh, this week, I'm joined by Pablos Holman. Now, if you've never heard of Pablos, I became aware of him through an incredible video that he did through his time when he was working with Singularity University and really talking about the future of the world. This guy is a hardcore futurist that sits at the kind of, I'd say, intersection of being both an entrepreneur and, and a truly classic inventor. Uh, with over 70 patents to his name, this guy has been one of the key inventors in the early stages of um, intellectual ventures, which was founded by the original CTO of Microsoft, Nathan Mirvold. He helped build a research lab for Jeff Bezos to research alternative forms of space travel, Blue Origin. He has founded multiple companies, most recently uh, Boardroom One, which is a compliant like board, board level communications platform. Uh, he's a general partner at Deep Future. And as I mentioned earlier, also a former faculty member at Singularity University, uh, where other great guests from OSHIP have come from, including Rob Gonda and Celine Ismail. Uh, so I'm really, really, really thrilled uh, to talk to Pablos today. And what we're going to get into is basically, uh, you know, kind of when you think about innovation, is, you know, is it kind of true invention that reshapes the world? Or is it this kind of innovation that you might see from entrepreneurs where they harness innovative ideas? to create what some of us may perceive as world-shaping ideas. So with that, here we go with another week of O-Ship. Hollis, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, man. I'm doing great. Great to see you. Loving, loving the old black background. I think it's very on brand, <laughs> very sharp. <laughs> so where, where are you calling in from today? I'm in Seattle today. Awesome. Little, nice little break from, uh, I'm guessing, a lot of travel when I look at your Yeah, schedule. I think I was in <laughs> North Carolina and Mexico and Kentucky and New York and San Francisco in like the last week. <laughs> Wow, I love it. Oh, Houston. Uh, it. Also, Houston. Next time you make it through North Carolina, look me up. I just just uh, just moved oh, okay. here. Yeah, mi missing my my first after moving from Miami, missing my first uh, hurricane in, in many decades. So, uh, and I, uh, I basically you know shout out to all the friends and colleagues that we've got down in, in South Florida uh, on the west coast of Florida this, uh, today. Obviously, it's a pretty pretty crazy time down there. Yeah. You know, I, I tried to do you justice in a brief intro without talking for 10 minutes about all the kind of crazy, amazing stuff you've been able to do in your career. And, you know, obviously I've done my fair share of research on you over the years, but I'd really like for our audience to learn a little bit more about you. Could, could you give a, a little bit more insight about, about your journey and you know, how you got to where you are today? <laughs> I don't know if it's weird, but I grew up in Alaska, which is pretty awesome. remote, kind of like an island. And... I got a computer when I was really young. I was like nine years old. And that was in the 70s before anybody had ever seen a computer. And I had one of the first ones you could have at home, an Apple II. Yeah. And so nobody for like a thousand miles in any direction knew more about it than me. So I had to learn everything the hard way, just crash it and reboot it. And so yeah. 
that ended up, you know, I, I don't know if that sort of made me sort of autodidactic, but I also, you know, learned to learn through reverse engineering. And so, you know, I had to learn how to code by reverse engineering assembly language, which is the machine language for a computer. That's a masochistic thing to do. Nobody would do that. So anyway, I, yeah. I learned a lot about computers from a really young age. And then I got such an early start that I only had to learn the new stuff. And so I just kept, I was always so interested. It was like a bottomless pit of puzzles for me. And so I just, I just learned all the new stuff that people could do with computers and that they were capable of and just kept up with it for so long that it got hard to catch up to me. And so that took me a lot of places. By the time I got out of high school in the late 80s, computers had sort of proven themselves as being sometimes useful. And so every business was trying to get computers. And so I would go, uh, I, you know, I got a lot of chances to go into different industries and, and put the first computers in and help people see how they could be useful. And I was just, I was really excited by being able to show people that this technology could help them and make their life better. And then, you know, over time, it just sort of advanced beyond that. Computers got very powerful and useful. They could help with a lot of different kinds of problems. And so I started trying to invent things that we could do with computers and take them new places. Uh, and, and that just kept going. And now I kind of do that, but on a, from a higher level, maybe with technology in general, you know, computers were very useful superpower that we got and now you know now i'm trying to advance other technologies that can help humans you know make things better so so, so you know when, when sometimes when i talk to people that have uh, had these kind of really interesting journeys through their career they look back and there's like a, an inflection point there was like a, mm. a moment or a project that kind of changed everything uh for them was there one of those for you where you're like it went from like hey i'm, I'm pretty pretty smart on this stuff to like oh, wow, like big people are now paying attention to what I'm doing. Because obviously you've had some access, some pretty incredible things. So was, was it was it gradual or was there like a, that, that, that moment? You know, you know what I mean? I think, I mean, it's, it's either a lot of those moments or it's gradual. I don't know. Because yeah. um, there were a lot of different things along the way that, you know, I, 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 mean, I definitely did not have like a master plan yeah. starting out from the beginning. But the, the, the critical moment was probably you know, it was probably very early when I felt like I had this superpower. You know, I was really excited about computers at a time when, I mean, I, I literally had a computer and I also had a skateboard when I was like, you know, I don't know, 12. And people were pretty conflicted about which was a bigger waste of time, right? <laughs> because it was just that era in the world. No, you know, computers seemed like a waste of time and money. Uh, and it was difficult to prove otherwise, like the spreadsheet hadn't been invented yet. So there was no strong evidence that people needed a computer, but I was so lit up about it. And so I think it was it was that moment early on, it was frustrating and hard and, and unrewarding because the computer actually kind of sucked. It was a one kiloflop computer, you know? <laughs> So, meaning, you know, it, it could my, do my, math my problems. first one was, was like, an Amstrad, and you look oh, yeah, okay. like the cassettes in there and press the play. Yeah, along, so right. You got you it. Math. Okay. There you go. So, you know, you could do math problems faster with a pencil than with the computer. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. So, that, so the, the moment that I think was the biggest inflection point for me was, was that kind of 
Revenge of the Nerds moment, probably sometime you know in the mid '80s or whatever, yeah. where where computers really proved themselves to be a force that was going to stay, and people started to, you know, I could I was a when I was a you know 16, 17, 18, I, I could go into a company, and you know bring a Mac or or some computer and show somebody how to do their job that they'd been doing for 20 years, but like in, a, in minutes, you know, and, and show that I could do their job. And so, you know, you see that enough times and, and, and people's reaction to it and those kinds of things, um, you know, it was those were early days, but in some sense, I feel like I'm still doing that. <laughs> so, you know, I know that uh, computers are uh, kind of at the core of, of your, uh, you know, I think it's okay to call it obsession with technology, but you, I get the impression you, you, work with a lot of different tech. Could, could you talk a little bit about your, your process for invention? Yeah, sure. I mean, when I, I mean, you know, obviously it starts because the computer is a unique invention. It's like, or a unique technology that is generally applicable. There's almost nothing that a computer can't make better. And so that just took me a lot of places. And then advancing the computer technology you know, means that it can go more places and it can be used in more things. But the, but the truth is there's, there's lots of other technologies that we need to advance and the computers have been helpful in advancing those technologies, right? So when you look at things like, you know, now CRISPR, which is a, a advancement in biology or, you know, advancements in chemistry or even, even in semiconductors, you know, all that stuff, it's possible because we have these powerful computers that we can use to help us. And so that, so you don't get those kinds of inventions very often. And I don't have any illusions that I'm going to, you know, or, or that anybody's really going to invent something as useful as a computer. But that's, that, that's, that's become a toolkit that's just, you know, unequivocally like super powerful. So then I think what I eventually learned and maybe didn't understand as well when I was younger is that the, the valuable thing to do is start with problems, yeah. right? So you want to understand problems and internalize them because when you can take a problem on, then you can go find the technology or invent the technology that can help you solve that problem. But, you know, as an inventor, if I, if I don't have a problem, then I'll still invent something. It'll just be totally useless. So, yeah, so yeah. yeah, that's kind of the worst. Yeah, there was the old saying, and putting my entrepreneur hat on, you, you never want to be a business that's where they call solution in search of a problem. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a good. It's I a have good done that a lot of times. Yeah, I've had I've had at least one of those under my belt. I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you know, in in the, the, the one of the videos, I think people will know you um, most for. You talked a little bit about this kind of, uh, you know, three, three kind of tracks, if I remember correctly. And it was like, you've got this one track that's out there looking at every new piece of technology that you could possibly wrap your head around at any given moment, right? And it's yeah. so, and sometimes when I think about uh, my own process, it's a little bit like dot connecting. So you've got like all yeah. these different texts that you're trying to absorb as many as you can. You don't necessarily need to be an expert in all of them because someone else yeah. has kind of invented this first part. But a lot of scientists invent these amazing things, but they don't actually have an applicable use necessarily. Yeah, that's right. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I think we have this, you know, we've, we've sort of led ourselves astray by imagining that one person's going to do it all. And that's just not yeah. true. Not, so, yeah, yeah like, in fact, even 
with invention in our lab, when I was at Intellectual Ventures, what we did is we turned it into a team sport. That's what made us so prolific. You know, we got 6,000 patents on our own inventions by turning it into a team sport. And that just meant, you know, find somebody with a problem and then surround them with a nuclear physicist, a laser expert, a chemist. I'm a computer hacker. Collectively, we know the cutting edge in every area in science and technology. And it's and it's at the borders where you get the get yeah. the invention. These, inter- these intersections, basically. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I thought that was so interesting. So it's like, you know, you've got you're piling in as many new techs as you can, you're looking at as many problems as you can, and yes. some kind of focus. And then you're like, okay, where where can I find the these crossover? One of the things that left this big impression on me, I think you meant it as a joke, but I think it was kind of half a joke. And you're like, hey, and, and on top of that, every great inventor needs a garage. And then you showed a picture of your your garage at the time and intellectual <laughs> ventures, which oh. was just this basis warehouse. I think you said you guys basically bought every machine you could yeah. possibly buy. And you're like, well, just in case we need it. you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, well, what happened? Something. So at the beginning of building that lab, you know, Nathan Mirvold had wanted to build a lab, but to do invention. And that's different than building a lab to do, you know, chemistry. If if you know you're doing chemistry, then you can build a chem lab. But we didn't know what we were going to be inventing. So we needed every kind of lab in every kind of science. And so we, what we did, Nathan really started it. He stayed up after midnight on these industrial auctions online just bidding on random scientific equipment so every day we get truckloads of new tools you know nine centrifuges would show up and we'd you know have some intern you know try and get three of them working and scrap the rest you know so we ended up with thousands of thousands of tools that wouldn't even fit in the lab so we have a warehouse that like looks like the warehouse at the end of indiana jones (laughs) full of tools that but but that that was cool for us because, you know, one, we could do it in a pretty cost-effective way because scientific equipment depreciates dramatically. So you could buy this stuff for pennies on the dollar. But the other thing is, you know, if you could fix it and store it. And then the other thing is, you know, if any project, if I needed a tool, I could have it that afternoon because we could just send somebody to the warehouse. So it was a very, very, uh, yeah, I was fortunate to be able to operate I mean, the difference really is just that we were operating at a larger scale than most inventors get to yeah. do. I was going to say, as, as an inventor, it sounds like a bit of a dream dream job in yeah. the environment, you know? Yeah, it was a very special time and place, and I was lucky to be there. So, so I have to ask, what's, what's harder, being an entrepreneur or being an inventor? Oh, I think the, the entrepreneurial part for me is harder because you deal with, you have to deal with a lot of people. Yeah. People are a big pain in the ass. Yes, they And they are. all have their <laughs> emotions and opinions and all this kind of stuff you got to deal with and you can't just like reboot them. So I don't, I mean, I don't cherish that so much. Um, yeah. Some people are really good at it and love it and yeah. they're really, and, and all that, but the emotional pain of entrepreneurship is very harder. hard. You know, yeah, you're responsible for a lot of people you know, they're counting on you, you know, so I don't know, there's a lot of a lot of things we could talk about there. But yeah, when you're an inventor, it is hard sometimes, especially if you're trying to do something new, 
trying to solve something for the first time and you don't know if it's going to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that can be the, the problem with inventor being an inventor is you most of them are doomed, right? Mm-hmm. Because they, they will not hard. succeed. It's really hard yeah. They will not succeed technically. Even if they succeed technically, they will fail to yeah. commercialize or, or set yeah. it on a commercial track that pays off in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. They don't get enough shots on goal. So they over they end up spending too much time on one thing that doesn't pay off. And and so it's a very lonely, sad, and failure prone thing to do. That's why you don't know anybody with a business card that says inventor on it, except for maybe me. And and it was and for me, you know, I got to cheat because I got to work at a larger scale where we got more shots on goal. I got to work on a team. And so, you know, being an inventor for me wasn't as as risky in some sense mm-hmm. as it was for a lot of people who, who who you think of you know that that crazy hair in a delorean type inventor yeah. i i have a, a a very very close friend who's also been on the uh o ship show in the past yeah who a biotech guy and when he he dropped out of you know harvard or whatever it was started building a biotech device in his garage yeah. And and uh, two years in, we're like, okay, you know, it's no longer than we expected. Four years in, people were like, hey, Freddie, you know, John really yeah. expect respects you. Will you have a chat with them and say maybe yeah. it's uh-huh. time to move on? Six years in, even I was like, oh man, uh-huh. this is getting messy. Seven years in, you know, he basically came out with a device that could do full spectrum DNA analysis, and I did ten minutes for five dollars or something. And you know, and Bill Gates, you know, personally invested in his company, and and you know, and so, and, but but I think. It, it takes a borderline madman, and John is a bit of a madman to to, to yeah. get to that place, you know. And it is lonely and and really hard. And I think you know, people listening to this conversation, whether now or, or later on any of our different streams, I think you know could say, I think I think a lot of that has to do with the personality. And I think what's so interesting about one of the things you pointed out with with uh, intellectual ventures was it kind of this takes a village collective mentality, which obviously I'm very uh, passionate about. Okay. And I think this really speaks to why you know having great partners is a good thing. You know, sometimes people don't yeah. like the the dealing with all the human side of it, and and I think you know great collaborations are essential. Um, I don't. I'm not a big believer in the you know uh, genius in a million helpers model. Like I think having really yeah. great partners is, is where it's at. Obviously, there's some huge examples out there of you know a genius in a million helpers becoming very very successful, but. I think most mm-hmm. people should really go out there and seek and find great, great partners. For sure, um, you know, and, and find that and find that balance. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the things in for entrepreneurs. I mean, two things there: the invention side. I mean, people really don't understand how hard and long and slow it is to do something new, mm-hmm. right? When when you're doing something new that's never been done before that first time is really, really, really hard. Mm-hmm. The second time is fucking easy. <laughs> and every time after that, by comparison, it's yeah, easy. Yeah, so yeah. I, I mean, I, so I really, d- I don't have a lot of respect for this idea that, you know, inventors just got in the right place at the right time, <laughs> you know, um, and got lucky or something, you know, it's, you have to dedicate I, yourself. I, I would to say that the, part. um, I think the process, I totally agree yeah. with you on that. I think when people, when I, at least when I think of that side of it, I think being in the right place at the right time, there's a second part of invention you kind of alluded to earlier that a lot of people don't think about, 
sometimes people come up with brilliant ideas and they just can't get anyone to pay attention to them. Yeah. You know, sure. because they're not maybe they're extroverted or they're they're a genius yeah. in the back you know back backwater part of some state or some country and they just don't you know no one ever sees their stuff which is kind of sad and i think in those cases there was maybe some luck with them but i don't, it certainly wasn't for their their intellectual process it may have just been the exposure part of it you know i mean you know that I mean? it takes a lot of ingredients to make something successful yeah. even once yeah. the yeah. invention here, here. works so so a little bit later i really want to get into some of the technologies that you're excited about but i want to dig a little bit more into this kind of uh, sitting at the intersection of entrepreneurialism and, and uh, invention effectively. And so uh, you know, now I think the concept of, of deep tech is becoming more pervasive. But for those of you listening or watching uh, or ship, if you're not familiar with deep tech, this is a kind of underlying technologies like telecommunications, AI, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, Things that basically, you know, soft, software as a language, like, or code, those are like underlying technologies that power other tech. And then you could argue that there's kind of more uh, shallow tech. You know, we talk about companies like Facebook or, you know, Instagram or Uber or whatever. We talk about them as technology companies. And you could argue that Uber with some of its self-driving car stuff, that's deep tech. But for the, mo- the, the app, the mobile app is not deep tech. That's effectively yeah, called shallow tech. Shallow tech, exactly. <laughs> it's shallow tech. You know, so I, I, I want to just kind of get your sense around, like, yeah, we, we, I feel like there's like an innovation cycle, right? So you see, there, you, sure. even I think what you do is is like is is innovating on innovation. So you get these guys really, really early on who are like hardcore yeah. research scientists. I don't even I don't even know if they, you know they, they consider themselves inventors. They're almost like scientists, right? So they're having these breakthroughs, and then I think there's the deep tech people that are, and I think you 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 fall in in, in a lot of this world where you're taking these things and then assembling them something that's more useful. And then there's almost like these other people. Yeah, they're they're inventing stuff, but it's this they're almost taking these other innovations and they're they're applying them in a you know it more like a consumer friendly way or applying them to the business world. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, the way I think about it, the easy way to delineate maybe the, and there's lots of overlap is you got your scientific researchers, their job is to figure out how the world works, mm-hmm. right? That's what science is about. The scientific research, your scientists are trying to figure out what, you know, how, you know, how does gravity work and what are magnets made of, you know, like <laughs> that kind of stuff. What's in a cell after all? That's that's scientific research and their job is to figure out, you know, how, how does the world work after that at the other end of the spectrum, the thing we see the most is the, is the entrepreneurship, right? That's, Mm -hmm. that means, can you find a market, make a product, make a customer happy, get somebody to pay you for something, all of that business stuff in the middle is the inventor. The inventor's job is to take the output of scientific research and, and see if you can use it to solve a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Does, this, does this new discovery change anything humans have ever done, right? Can you do it, do something faster, cheaper, or better, or in a more humane fashion? Like you're trying to, trying to solve problems. That's what an inventor is doing, mm-hmm. right? And they might be, start with a problem. They might have one problem they're so fixated on, they're going to try everything to get to it. That happens sometimes. 
on the other side, I'm like, collect all the, you know, I read all the new scientific discoveries <laughs> that I can, especially around computers. And I, every one of them is a chance test myself, you know, can I solve any of these problems that I know about? And then I collect problems with the other side of my brain and, you know, match them up using the Rubik's cube on the inside. And that's, <laughs> that's really where, how I think of invention, but, but, you know, you need all of those stages. They're like, they're like developmental stages. And so the, you know, so the entrepreneurs are the ones that we've been really fixated on in the last couple of decades. You know, we support them, we cherish them, we celebrate them, we make movies about them, we fund them. That's entrepreneurs. And the problem with it is we've sort of overdone it, right? So now we are, we have a whole generation. This wasn't true when I was a kid. Now your parents want you to be an entrepreneur, right? Now you kids grow up wanting to be an entrepreneur. Well, why is that? That's because we had a generation of entrepreneurs that became very successful. And yeah. so now it got legitimized. But when you look at it, what's happening is a lot of them, they're making great businesses out of, you know, what's essentially just software, mm. right? So we think we live in a world full of technology, but we really just live in this world full of software. Mm. And that's okay. Software is useful and we do want to apply it to everything, but we shouldn't kid ourselves. You know, that's not where the winds are going to come from going forward, right? Like you, if you drive down Highway 101 in the Bay Area now, right, look at the billboards. Every single one of them is somebody advertising software product for software developers. Mm. Like it's kind of, it's getting out of control, right? So mm -hmm. we've already done all the easy stuff. We've done all the things with software that, you know, you can do, you can make a machine learning for scooter deployment, iPhone app or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that stuff's getting done. But I don't think, I, I think, you know, that's kind of the easy stuff. And I think we should think of it as, you know, a software industry and get back to the actual technology development because we've been ignoring that. And so there's all this amazing stuff that came through scientific research that got, that works, that was discovered that, you know, that was proven that we did trials on or whatever, but then it got dropped on the floor mm. because the the tech industry doesn't want to do any hardware. They don't want to do anything hard. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that, like that spectrum I was describing earlier. I feel like we're getting all these people who want to offer, you know, want to play at that last, I'm going to call it the, uh, like micro innovation stage of it. Right. And, not, yeah. and not enough people that want to play at the macro innovation level were these yeah. big, serious, serious world-changing ideas. And I want to also be clear, I don't want to diminish, like... Yeah, we need you know, both. Change, changing, changing global behaviors for consumers. Sure, that that's something, that's impressive. But 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 I think a lot of times the micro-innovations can be fleeting, uh, even if they reach a billion people, you know what I mean, versus the, the yeah. underlying deep tech that hopefully we use for decades in some cases. Well, a lot um, of times deep tech, I mean, I think of it as you know, kind of the hard stuff and fundamental technologies, you know, it's less about applying sprinkling software on everything, but I mean, you still use software, but the, what, what people don't realize is that, you know, the efficiencies of software, you know, are so, are just so vast that people, that the whole, we got drunk on software, basically, you know, yeah, venture yeah. capital got drunk on software, you know, entrepreneurs yeah. got drunk on software. And so, you know, they, they got to the point where they can do this very predictable, quick, 
profitable companies. Um, I call them sass holes sometimes because <laughs> I'm trying to like antagonize that. them. But, you know, and that's okay. We need to do that. But I, but I don't think we should kid ourselves and, and, and think that, you know, we're saving the world here. You know, what we're doing is opportunistic in those cases. We're, we're making a product that has some pay, high value pain point for some company or a person. That's fine. But there's a lot of problems in the world that are big that we can solve using technology and 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 not that's that's not exclusively software. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I try to antagonize people to think about that a bit. I think a little bit of antagonization is good, 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 healthy nudging the world needs. So, so let, let's use this as a, as a segue. You know, there's so many things that I've seen you kind of touch on for people that follow you on social media and things like that. There's a lot of tech you're fascinated by, but is there anything uh, that you think is is worth chatting about now that we can talk about with the audience and just have a little good old fashioned geek out session? Oh yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think I think there's. I get to see a lot. You know, I go to labs all the time. I see, you know, science fiction being incarnated you know in real time um so there's a lot and that's the thing i think is so exciting and why for me i'm just wildly optimistic because you know you can't it's hard it's hard even to find a problem that we don't have technology to solve right there's a lot of work to do to and this is why i think you know entrepreneurs are really missing out if they're building a company without a new technology because we have so many and there's a lot of potential and we could go, you know, we could go solve these things, but we have to build those products, build those companies. And so, you know, these days I, 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 I collect those things. Uh, one of the companies I'm helping that I think is super cool is building that people don't know about is, is building uh, solar panels, but they put them in space. And if you put solar panels in space, it solves the two biggest problems with solar. No clouds, no nighttime. So these solar panels can get eight times as much sun. Wow. And they beam it down. They can beam that energy down to Earth anywhere on the planet using radio waves. Is that how efficient is that? How much is lost? I don't know if you know, but how much energy is lost in that process out of interest? Well, the it's a good question, but it almost doesn't really matter because you get so There's much so energy much more to start yeah, with. Yeah, 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 but yeah, actually the losses aren't as bad as, as people yeah. imagine. It, it's, it's not so bad. So the losses are totally reasonable. It's yeah, yeah. The, actually, this whole idea is not even very technically uh, controversial. It's been around for a while. We know it'll work. Its only problem is launch cost. Yeah. And, launch and, cost that's, and that's going down. down all the time. I mean, those exactly. are streaks. This is a big thing. I, I and, and speak preaching to the choir with you, but for those people listening, I'm very passionate about innovation, as all of you guys know. Nowhere near in publicist league, but but something that I've been watching for a long time. And I think sometimes I talk about tech, and people like say, "Well, that, I don't get it. I just don't see it." But what they're thinking about is, you know, the one thing that's been really consistent for a long time now. Yeah, technology is getting is getting more powerful and always improves, and the cost simultaneously goes down. So while things you know don't yeah. look realistic now, you know, or yeah. we're like it's just not quite there, but it, it's going to get there. It always seems to get there. Um, well, so it's never a matter of if for most things, as long as it solves a real problem, 
it's more of a matter of when. And I think solar being a great, you know, this kind of solar tech being a great example of that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, there's some nuance there. I mean, not everything follows Moore's law. Um, So if the, if, and we've experienced a lot of those stories that, that kind of substantiate we're talking about were things that fundamentally just followed Moore's law. Mm-hmm. And so, and, you know, and if you look at Moore's law as kind of an abstraction, in a lot of ways, that is why we have these things like GPT-3 and Dolly and these things now. And I, and I tend to focus more on computer focused tech. So that yeah. maybe makes sense why I feel that way versus a lot of these bigger other technologies. That but, I'm sure you know, it's valuable because if you can take a, something and pin it to Moore's law, then you can get those gains, right? Mm-hmm. And so who, you know, for a lot of people, they probably didn't think art was on the Moore's Law track. Well, guess what? <laughs> now, as of this week, pretty well pinned to Moore's Law. So sometimes you can solve a problem by 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 figuring out how to pin it to Moore's Law, and mm-hmm. then you can plot a curve and know when it's going to be solvable. And so I, I don't think that that's a, necessarily bad, but there are times, like for me, you know, there were times when I got it wrong mm-hmm. and I thought I thought we were going to ride Moore's Law and we didn't. So like a good example of that is the is, you know, probably our most famous invention is this machine that can find mosquitoes and shoot them down with lasers yeah. as as a malaria intervention. Amazing. Yeah. And and people love that. Yeah. But we invented that, you know, more than a decade ago. And yeah, I remember still, reading all about it when it came out. And this. OK, right. Yeah. yeah, and it's super cool, and obviously we want that. But the but the laser didn't follow Moore's law. Yeah, right. Everything else, we thought, oh, you know, yeah, it's expensive for us to build this now, but yeah. eventually yeah. it'll just get cheaper. And we watched, and all everything did get cheaper except for the laser, which yeah. you know, which is a you know not something that's solid state, and and it yeah. didn't get cheaper, and so it's still yeah. too expensive to use in Africa. And those lasers. Yeah. Well, you know who so. Instead of building a, you know, another scooter company, if you have entrepreneurs listening, go build a laser. <laughs> Please company. go straighten the lazy thing out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it'll, you'll it, enable it, a lot of. That would be a deep tech thing. I would back yeah, that. <laughs> another one we we chatted about, uh, you know, pre-show, uh, and I think is very timely uh, given you know what's happening right now with Ian. Uh, was you said you've been working on some technology related to hurricanes. Uh, can we chat a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So, well, this is uh, this is two thousand seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there. We invented this machine. Yeah, here we go. That can suppress a hurricane. So hurricanes are fueled by heat irradiating off the surface of the ocean. So the sun shines on the ocean, heats up the surface, that re-irradiates in the infrared spectrum, and that fuels your hurricane. So this is a giant tube. You stick it in the ocean. Waves push the hot water on top into the center of this tube because it's kind of an artificial beach, you know, a ramp around the top. So the waves push the hot water in the top. That creates this hydraulic head that pushes the hot water down where it mixes up with the cold water below. Everywhere you have this problem of hurricanes, you've got hot water on top, cold water below, and you have a free source of energy, which is waves. So in this invention, which is literally the simplest invention we've ever come up with, one of these tubes will pump a a gigawatt or more of thermal energy transfer. 
So it wow. brings the surface temperature down by one or two degrees for about a square kilometer. And you might need one of these every square kilometer all over the Gulf or something, but collectively they'll get your cat fives down to cat four or cat three. And, wow. and, and they're, you know, they're made of like recycled truck tires and yeah, yeah they're, the, so they're cheap to make cheaper than the cost of a hurricane by a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and th- these are the kind of things I feel like, again, uh, as we, as we start thinking about how we invest in technology yeah. where, you know, this may look you know crazy, but it, I think with the increased frequency of these storms, the yeah. serious cost implications. This this yeah. is this is preventative medicine, effectively. I look. Um, I worked you know. on that. Yeah, I worked on that. You know, whatever, 12, 13, 14 years ago, and nobody has come up with a good reason not to do it. Mm. The the problem and the reason it doesn't get done is there's no business model, mm. right? So the only we're not. This is the government. The government needs to stand in, basically. Yeah, the, it's got to be done by governments. And, you know, unfortunately, modern governments don't seem very good at large scale infrastructure projects. It's a shame so. you figured they would have figured that out by now. <laughs> so, it's only been a couple hundred years here, but, you know. No, we used uh, to be good at it. We built yeah, railroads. Yeah. <laughs> we built the shipping industry. We built, you know, aircraft carriers, but we can't build a tube in the water. <laughs> Recycle, recycled tires to yeah, prevent hurricanes. Wow. Eventually, you know, uh, the U.S. being capitalist at its core, I think, uh, will eventually work out that this is just a good investment, in my opinion. I, I really hope that investment. Well, you think that, but but we have, you know, one of the problems is that, you know, we've abstracted risk. So, so mm-hmm. hurricane damage, you know, we don't pay for that. Insurance pays for that. The insurance companies are, have what's called a free rider problem, which means... You know, if one insurance company pays for it, the other ones get the benefit for free. So now their operating cost is lower and, they're, and the, the guys who paid for it are no longer competitive. Even if you have a coalition of insurance companies pay for it, then the one that doesn't, they're the most profitable insurance company. So you end up in this you know, situation where it's like a catch-22 of incentives. So, so government's going to have to step in and either do it or make all the insurance companies pay for it in a collectively. And so far I haven't seen that happen, oh, but um, yeah, it's a cool well, invention. It's <laughs> really cool, man. I, I, I love it. I want to, I want to talk about one more topical one. Yeah. Obviously uh, AI generated art and, and uh, imagery has been a huge, huge, huge conversation. Uh, certainly at least in my circles over the last couple of months, most of these programs have been in beta and some format, although people are increasingly in access to them. One of the most famous of those, I think, has been uh, Dolly. And just to be clear, for those of you who don't know it, it's D-A-L-L-E versus Dolly, like D-L-I, the artist, um, but obviously inspired by. And if you don't understand what this tech is, effectively, it is a computer that has been trained by being fed insane amounts of images and, and to be able to recreate imagery on the fly. And you could do something as simple as uh, last night, I, I was playing with it and said, uh, you know, uh, a, a uh, heavy set man looking into the camera and smiling, photorealistic, and it literally generates photorealistic images. They, they, they're, they're not, they're a little flawed, but they look like, they look like photos. And, and, or you could say, I could say the same thing and do be like in the style of Monet or something, and it yeah. would make it look like impressionist art. It, it is 
for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's absolutely mind-bending. You know, Pablo and I are in the space. I showed it to my 84-year-old mother, though, and it damn near melted her her brain. And my wife, who isn't and, and has been at least historically an artist, you know, so I, I effectively was able to recreate some paintings in the style that she does yeah. in seconds. And it you know yeah. also kind of melted her brain down. You know, beyond everyone's brains melting over here at, at the Laker residence, I'd love to get your take, uh, Pablos, from a technology standpoint. Where, where is this all going? Where where, do, where does it go from here? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, you and I have lived through that cycle a lot of times. I mean, a, a calculator has been faster at math than you and I since we were born. Yeah. So, you know, we've had we've lived in a world where where a computer could outperform a human at some tasks. And that has continued to grow over time, the kinds of tasks the computer can do. We had this big inflection point with machine learning, you know, really a decade or so ago, partly because computationally, we just got to a point where we had a surplus of computational ability for the first time. And and so that's one thing. And then the other was kind of a breakthrough with deep learning, which made it much more practical to, to create AIs that could, you know, sort of figure stuff out. And the, and the difference, just so it's clear for your audience and, and if people aren't up to speed on this stuff, you know, up, up until that point, we were in a world where computers could kind of do very prescribed things. You know, you could, you could feed them a recipe and they could follow the steps of the recipe in a logical progression and get predictable results. And, and so, you know, Computers were something that humans could sort of understand rationally if they were trying. What happened with AI is we got to a point where now the computer could ingest massive amounts of data, more data than any human ever could. And it could create its own algorithms. So what that means is, so uh, uh, we use fancy terms like, you know, neural networks and, you know, computational modeling and, Monte Carlo simulations and stuff. But the point is, it's actually pretty simple, right? Because what's going on in a in a neural net really is a computer is just j- randomizing a bunch of algorithms, testing them to see how well they work, and then throwing out the ones that don't work. Mm-hmm. And, and you just keep iterating on that. I'm simplifying a bunch, but you could think of it that way. And when we say algorithm, all we really mean is a formula like you'd see in a cell in a spreadsheet like Excel, right? So a formula, which is like, you know, A16 plus A17 equals, that's a formula. Well, a formula generated by a neural net is like seven miles long. (laughs) It's just a super complicated algorithm that no human could ever understand or execute on their own. So what's happening, the net effect of that is that now the computers are able to find an algorithm that gives the best answers. And it's based on all this data, massive troves of data. And that's and, it, and, it, and what happens at the end of that is you have a system that where the computer can now give you a better answer, right? It can tell you a better answer, but it doesn't tell you why. In a spreadsheet, you can kind of go look at all the, you know, I can go look at A16 and A17, and I can look at the bottom line and sort of understand what happened. I can read that formula, but, and you can get your head around it. So your relationship between causation and correlation has flipped, right? And that's uncomfortable to humans. 
So even for people who understand the technology, it's uncomfortable relationship with decision-making. But the people who internalize these tools and understand AI and machine learning as a tool for humans to use, that next generation is gonna be super powerful because we're giving them the best toolkit humans have ever had for making decisions. And so they're gonna grow up with these tools and they're gonna make better decisions. Mm-hmm. And, and the side effect, the, you know, the parlor trick is, is Dolly, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe Dolly can execute on an artistic concept better than me, but you know what? I always sucked at painting. I was never any good at it. I might have had an idea in my head of an image, but I didn't have the skill to execute that. Well, you know what? Dolly's letting me do that. Yeah. So you're, what you're doing is you're not replacing artists. You're replacing craftspeople. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think, that, I think that's, it's that's, very, that's a really nice way of thinking about it, actually. Yeah, it's very important to understand the difference. You know, we talk about art as if anybody who can paint is an artist. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people who can go to Carnegie Hall and get a piano and they're they're a piano piano playing robot and it's amazing that they learned to play a piano that fast but they're they're not fucking Brahms right so they didn't so there's a difference and I think we're very disingenuous a lot of times about understanding that difference and so now Dali makes me an artist it's a tool so I can get these visual ideas from my head into your head that's what an artist is trying to do. But a lot of them had to hone a craft before to do it. Now the tools are there. So all these technologies, including Dolly and GPT-3, these are just tools for humans to, to create. And we need to learn to internalize that. Let's take a hypothetical really I'm quickly. I'm preaching, I um, know. But. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I like preach on, brother. <laughs> so, so, so uh, you know, I think you're in the business of, taking different technological ideas and bringing them together to create new ideas. I think mean, at, at your core, I hope that. I hope, I hope yeah. That's I'm trying course. to add tools to the arsenal here. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah. so if you were to look 10 years in the future, let's assume we've totally, we've cracked quantum computing by that. No, you, let's not you, skip that one. You, you, don't, <laughs> do, you don't think so? No. You don't no. think so? No. So I well, let me rephrase it a different way. Okay. What if, <laughs> what if you applied, you know, a thousand times the, you know, computational horsepower to something sure. like Dali or whatever yeah. the future of Dali is. Yeah. Can we, could that be, you know, how, well, actually I'm not going to load the question. What, ha, what, what, what do you think that starts allowing us to do? Um, well, I think the, the near future is obvious yeah. because, you know, yeah. we now have Dali, we have deep fakes. We're going to be yeah. able to, you know, you can make those artistic images. The next thing you'll be able to do is make movies and, you know, all your actors can be rendered, you know, yeah. all of your, all, all the things that Dolly can do for one still image, you'll be able to do for a film. And and I think that'll be a powerful storytelling machine. Like right now, if I got a story I want to tell and I want to make a movie, I got to get millions of dollars and hire 500 people to, to execute on that. But you're going to be able to make a feature film with just in the, in the same way you can make a podcast. Like I don't need a whole radio studio anymore to yeah. make a podcast you can do it with your iPhone. And so you'll be able to make feature films with your iPhone. So that's where, where, we're that, where that's going. And I think, you know, it's seen as obsoleting 500 people who used to be necessary to make a movie, but it's going to make 500 people into filmmakers yeah. that used to only be able to do one part of the job. So we just need to understand these are, this is, this is 
awesome advancements for civilization. This is, you know, we, you think about musicians, you know, you used to have to spend your entire childhood in frustration, figuring out how to make a violin not sound horrible in order to become a musician and then start to maybe create something or imagine getting an orchestra together just to be able to record something. Well, they're all obsoleted by DJs yeah. who are at home with a MacBook. So, yeah. you know, and, and you can argue about it, but what are people, go look on Spotify, what are people listening to? It's not an orchestra, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's, and it's not because we couldn't have an orchestra if we wanted, it's because they got outcompeted by a DJ who can make cooler yeah. sounding stuff. Yeah. So I know that sounds a little brash, but the same thing is happening with, you know, with visual art now. And, you know, that's been a long progression that's been going on since Photoshop. But, we're, you know, I, I think these things are these are these are good things that need to be embraced. You might suck at embracing it and you're just going to grow old and die maybe a few days before we figure out life extension. But your kids <laughs> are going to grow up with, you know, 3D printers and Dolly and these tools. And that's going to seem normal to them. And they're going to be able to wield those tools to make the future they want. And that's going to be awesome. Them, I, I, so. I think there's a big, big opportunity uh, in right when I daydream about like where this could really go. I, I could see this being the thing that finally makes VR really awesome. I love this idea that you know you could say, "Look, I want to be in this immersive world that is this," and that, yeah. it, and it's effectively generating a game environment for yeah. you. Sure. You take that then Easy. with conversational chatbots, and it's like, yeah, I just I want to I want to go to I want to go to Bali. Yeah. And and I and had this vision of myself staring on a cliffside over this and this. And you're like, you're there and you're talking to other people, yeah. the NPCs. I think, I think, you know, this, and it, you know, this is where I think that tech. We're goes. already so, talking and, to a lot of NPCs. Yeah. Right. As far as I can tell. <laughs> it's <funny. laughs> non-virtual reality. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I, I'm look, I'm a, I'm a hardcore science fiction nerd. Okay. I can tell that you clearly, you know, you talk a lot about making science fiction real. So I have to ask is my final question for you today. Uh, what's your favorite science fiction book of all time? Oh, man. Uh, I'm actually not, I don't read a lot of science fiction. So yeah. I have to say, you know, other people, you know, are much more authoritative on this. Yeah. You know, I've spent my life trying to implement Neil Stevenson novels. And yeah, so, yeah. um, I go pretty far back with those books. If you create enough science fiction on your own, you don't need to read other people's science yeah, fiction. Yeah, I also don't want to be accused awesome. of plagiarism, you know? So yeah, yeah, like, um, every <laughs> time I invented anything, that. somebody will tell me, oh, yeah, they did that in Star Trek. And, yeah. and since yeah, I didn't writing, watch Star writing Trek. Writing it on a TV show does not make an invention. <laughs> well, it's, I, I mean, I think it it's an important part of it. Yeah, it's an important part of the life cycle. We need the science fiction not authors yeah. to create practical visions of the future you know and i think right now they're doing a terrible job they're being lazy and irresponsible and they're writing all these dystopian stories which are scary and they you know they sell better but but it's yeah. but that's not that's no, the no easy wonder shit. All doom and gloom and i've turned into a prepper thanks science fiction yeah right <laughs> I, I you know i think we should boycott dystopia yeah. And, you know, you know, join me in creating like the the dystopia resistance movement, you know, I like that. I like, need a little positivity in my day to day. Yeah. So, the, no, the future can be awesome. There is yeah. literally no evidence that we that it, that it has to be 
horrible, but you know, people are, you know, people are uh, pessimistic by nature or something. So well, I think, yeah. I also think the future can be awesome. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, <laughs> Dune is my favorite science fiction okay. of all time. And Robert Babcock is definitely wrong for commenting that Dune, anything but Dune. So, <laughs> no, Robert, I disagree. <laughs> so, all right. you, you can you can arm wrestle over that one. <laughs> so, so um, again, Thomas, thank you so much for finding the time to chat with me. I, re- I really enjoyed it. We could have, I could have picked your, told you off for another three hours. <laughs> You know, you've got a, you've got a company, Deep Future, where you're a general partner, and I know that's a lot of your focus these days. But if people want to find you, they can obviously find you on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Uh, yeah. and I love that you got that at Publish, which I think is awesome. Any any other places that people, if they want to go learn more about you, they should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't post a lot of stuff online, but the the podcast at deepfuture.tech is is cool, and and we have a lot more coming there. I like to just go have conversations with with people who are smarter than me and try to learn about the problems in the world and and the technologies we can use to solve them. So if that sounds interesting, there's the podcast. Yeah, and then if you know, I I like to work with inventors and entrepreneurs who are who are inventing these new technologies. And so if you find anybody with crazy hair and a DeLorean, then send them my way. I mean, I get crazy ideas, but I've got no yeah. hair. Would I still qualify? <laughs> yeah, you're totally disqualified. No, actually, oh, it's surprising it. how, how important the bug guys are. I don't know. We need a lot of them. Uh, every, every time uh, I find myself in the room with the bug guys. So, by the way, I love when you were giving dates earlier. I was like, this guy, I think he's five years older than me. And he looks five years younger. That's so unfair. <laughs> That's salsa dancing. I'm, I'm an obsessed salsa dancer. It'll keep you younger. I would have never, ever pegged that. On I you. know. I, think I love that. Well, that's a great, that's a great random twist at the end. It was so, <laughs> so good to meet you. So thankful you got on this ship. For awesome. those of you watching uh, and the show, thank you again for your support. The best thing you can do is like, share, and subscribe. Check out oshipshow.com if you haven't, and you can see all the different places, whether you want to watch us on video, on any of our key streaming platforms, or you want to change over to listen to us passively on uh, on the audio format, You know, please do that. But again, uh, Thomas, thanks for your time, and thank you to all of you for being uh, subscribers to Oship. Have a great day. The O Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sails for the O Ship Show.